Every time we come to the communion table, mindful of being forgiven. Forgiven. If there's anything that any of us need in life, there's nothing we need more than forgiveness. Would you agree? We're in constant need of forgiveness. For those of you, if you're visiting with us again this morning, I just want to uh, share with you that we are in the early stages of our study in the Gospels. It's called the Harmony of the Gospels. So it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all woven together. And uh, you get to come in early. We're in chapter 3 of Luke's Gospel, still in the, the early stages. Look with me, if you would, at Luke chapter 3. And uh, let's just rehearse the first six verses. We started in this passage last week. I want to complete it this morning. Keep an eye on your neighbor for me. Keep glancing at your neighbor if you know them going this. Just give them a little sharp elbow, okay? Loving rebuke. Luke records in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. When Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea, and Traconitus, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. So that's the historical setting. Those are all the people who are in place when John comes. Luke tells us that these people were all the rulers when the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. Now there's a quote from Isaiah chapter 40. Which references clearly back to this voice calling out in the wilderness. Who would be John fulfilling this great prophecy. A voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight. The rough ways smooth. And all mankind will see God's salvation. Now Luke tells us that the word of the Lord came to John in the desert. In Matthew's gospel, the the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 3, Matthew says that all the people went out from Jerusalem, all Judea, and the the whole... um, region of the Jordan. They went out to hear John. Now we know that John probably grew up in the desert. Probably his parents died when he was relatively young. Went into the desert. That's where he grew up. That's where he stayed. That's where he begins his ministry. Now prior to John's coming, it has been 400 years since any prophet or prophecy had been given to Israel. These are called, this is called the intertestamental period between the end of the Old Testament, the close of Malachi, and the opening of the New Testament with the gospel writers. That's a period of about 400 years. It's called the intertestamental period. God had not spoken to his people during those 400 years. Now the Israelites knew and understood that uh, there was a Messiah coming. They knew from the prophecies of Daniel, Isaiah, and Hosea and uh, Malachi indeed, that the prophets would say and did say that there was a Messiah coming. But there would be somebody who would be a forerunner, someone who would announce his coming. And so they knew those prophecies. And so uh, it's at this particular point where they're living with a heightened sense of messianic expectation, Messiah's coming. Malachi was the last prophet to speak to them. And particularly Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, you have the reference clearly speaking to this Messiah, Messianic coming, and as well, one who would announce his coming. And that would be John, an Elijah kind of individual. So news that this prophet, that John had appeared in the desert and was preaching, this excited all the people. Hence, they all flood out to the desert to hear John. Matthew records that for us. And we're told that John went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Let me suggest to you, three things go hand in hand. 
Repentance, forgiveness, and baptism. What are the three things? They go hand in hand. John's message is a message, it's the same message that everyone who preaches, teaches, shares God's good news, it's the same message. We share the same message that John shares. What's that message? Repentance, forgiveness, and baptism. Listen to Peter on the day of Pentecost when Peter preaches his very first sermon. And on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit has fallen on the church, he goes out in the streets of Jerusalem, he begins to preach. And the people are so convicted by the, the words that he says that their response is, Luke says that they, they, were, they were cut to the heart. They were, they were convicted. So righteously convicted that their only response could be to Peter, what must we do? What must we do to be saved? How can we possibly be saved? We're so convicted. We realize that we need to be saved. And Peter's response in verse 38 of chapter 2 of the book of Acts, Peter says, repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ so that your what? Your sins may be forgiven. I call that the three-step plan. We have lots of plans in this world, don't we? This is the simplest one, three steps. What, how does it begin? Repent. Repent. Now, it is God's good news and God's good news alone that provides hope to any person. We have good news to share, do we not? Does the world view us as sharing good news or bad news? Bad news. They don't want to hear from Christians because we don't share good news. Now you have to contextualize the good news in, with bad news, don't you? If you study the book of Romans, Paul sets forth the, the bad news before he announces the good news. He says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness. And he says every human being is under the wrath of God. And then in chapter 3, verse 21, he says, but now. I love those words, but now. But now, although the bad news, but now, there's good news. We ought to be known as people, people of good news, should we? Absolutely, absolutely. And we live in a, in a quite frankly, in a sin-cursed, lost, dark, dying world. That's the reality of it. This world is going to pass away. Everything that people hold dear in this life is going to burn. And, and the only thing that's going to last is Christ and his kingdom and his will. The message of good news is for all people. Paul writes to Timothy and he tells Timothy that God wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Will all men be saved? No. Will all men come to a knowledge of the truth? No, but God still wants them. It's like you and I. We have people in our life, family members, friends, neighbors, acquaintances, people that we work with, people maybe we go to school with, and we look at them and we see the need in their life and we want them to come to a knowledge of the truth, don't we? We want them to do it. it just because we want it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen. There's a mystery there between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. But God wants everyone to come to a knowledge of good news. We have... Great news to tell people. Now John's, John's preaching, his, he comes at a point, at a real low point spiritually in Israel. Um, they are literally spiritually bankrupt. On the surface they don't appear like they are, but in reality they are. They desperately need to hear God's call to repentance. If you recall, they were... Years earlier, remember when we studied through the book of Daniel? And God had, had told Israel time and time again, unless you repent, unless you turn back to me from your idolatry, you're going to be carried off into captivity where? In Babylon. And they were. They did not repent. They didn't turn from their, their idolatry. And so God punished them by taking them into Babylon for 70 years. Interestingly, that 70-year period where they were captive in Babylon cured them of their idolatry. Now, on one hand, that's good news, right? 
But on the other hand, the pendulum, you know how the pendulum swings from one extreme to the other? The pendulum swings to the opposite extreme in their life. When John comes preaching to them, he does so uh, instead of idolatry being the bane of their existence, they, were, they arose in, an, in a legalistic religious system. And this is when Jesus comes and preaches, he tells them about it. And he castigates the leaders, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the leaders of Israel, religiously, spiritually. And he castigates them. Just read Matthew chapter 23, among other places, where he just calls them to task because they've laid heavy burdens, legalistic burdens on the people's shoulders. Are we capable of doing that? Yeah, we are. It's part of our fallen human condition. Let me suggest to you that you know you're a legalist or you know you're involved in legalism when the sense arises in your life where you become, you become aware of this dynamic that your acceptance is based on your performance. Now, we do that every day, don't we? We live in a world that unless we're performing, we're not acceptable. Do people, would we make that really clear? And a lot of times, unwittingly, we raise our kids that way. We manipulate them. We try to get them to perform, and we offer the bait of acceptance. You're acceptable. Good boy. Good girl. Only if you're what? If you're performing. It's a subtle thing, but it's deadly. It doesn't produce life. And this is the essence of legalism. This was the essence of the Jewish legalistic system at the time. All the leaders of Israel, the religious leaders, put these heavy, heavy burdens on the people. They had to perform. They had to perform. They had to perform in order for God to accept them. And this is what Jesus would denounce. And more particularly, he denounced it in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7, the most familiar passage. Have you, how, many, who, how many have read the Sermon on the Mount? Isn't it enjoyable reading? Now he says at, at the right beginning, he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the what? The scribes and the Pharisees. In other words, all the leaders who are putting this stuff on you, your righteousness has to surpass them because if it doesn't, and these guys were looked at as being the most righteous in the nation, weren't they? And so here you're an average Israelite and you're going, I could never be like them. And so they were, I'm a failure spiritually. And Jesus absolutely denounces in the Sermon on the Mount this whole attitude, this whole legalistic system. And he simply declares that no one could claim a right relationship with God by keeping the law. Which they were, the people were led to believe. You keep the law, you have a right relationship with God. You said, yeah, but they had a sacrificial system. They got offer sacrifices for their sins and their failures, right? Do you suppose they offered perfect sacrifices every time? No. Imagine if you're offering a lamb on the day of atonement for your sins, you're, you're coming to the temple, you have to have what kind of lamb? A spotless lamb. I mean, if you've got one spot on it, one small defect, and the priest examined those, those lambs scrupulously, and you're turned away because your lamb isn't good enough, your offering isn't good enough. That's a bummer, huh? So there's really no guarantee for the people that they could have a right relationship with God simply by keeping the rules, the do's and don'ts. Am I making sense? How many, for you, this is a rehearsal of stuff you already knew? Oh, just a handful of you, okay. So for the rest of you, this is all brand new stuff. Why is it, why is it that you can't achieve a righteous and, and a right relationship with God by keeping the law? Why is that? Is God's law perfect? Absolutely perfect. Must it be kept perfectly? Can imperfect people keep God's perfect law perfectly? No. We're dead right from the get-go, aren't we? Yeah. Anyone counting on self-righteousness, if you will, a self-generated righteousness, any kind of achievement to earn or merit salvation, 
is tantamount to foolishly building on sand. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus talks about the man who foolishly built his house on sand. And when the storms came, and more particularly, the storm of God's judgment comes, you know, you built this wonderful life and you've, you, 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 you think you've got it all together and all your P's and Q's are in place. And then when God's judgment comes, it just blows it all away. It's because you're trusting in yourself. What does Proverbs say? Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Right? Acknowledge him in all your ways. Don't lean on your own understanding. He'll make our path straight. Those are, those are hallmark verses Hallmark truths that we must cling to, keep us mindful. So here are the people. The realization that they could not perfectly keep God's law laid a heavy burden of guilt on them. And they knew the guilt. I can't do this. We can't do this. We can't. We're guilty, guilty, guilty. But they also knew that God had promised forgiveness. So though they knew they were guilty, they knew that God had promised forgiveness. Let me just read to you some of the passages uh, that they would hearken to and cling to. In Jeremiah chapter 31, God speaks to Jeremiah and he says, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Isn't that a delightful thought? Remember their sins no more. They also understood that God is by nature a forgiving God. He's by nature a forgiving God. The Lord described himself to Moses. You recall in Exodus chapter 34, uh, when when Moses was on the mountain with God and and Moses says, I want to see you. And God says, no man can see me and live, but I'll put you in the rock and then I'll pass by and you can see my backside. And, And so he did that. And as God passed by, his glory passed by, God proclaimed his name and his character to Moses. And in the context of that proclamation, God said of himself that he's a forgiving God, forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. He's a forgiving God. Should forgive us and mark our lives? Yes. In the book of Numbers in chapter 14, Moses, again, interceding for rebellious Israel, characterized God as slow to anger, abounding in love, and forgiving sin and rebellion. In Psalm 32, David writes these things. Verses 1 and 2. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. In verse 5, he says, When I acknowledged my sin to you, I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. We hide. We hide. And God says, no, no, confess. John says what? When we confess that God's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there's a heavy burden of guilt, and, and, and the people knew that God was a forgiving God. In Psalm 103, verse 12, David expressed the magnitude of God's forgiveness. Listen to this. I love this. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Man, there's just nowhere in sight. Our sins and transgressions are nowhere in sight. Isn't that good news? Isaiah, Isaiah pictured God's forgiveness as washing our sins so thoroughly, he said, though they are like crimson, he will wash them so thoroughly that they are as what? White as snow and as wool, white wool. In chapter 38 of Isaiah, we read this. God has put all our sins behind his back. And I love this part, chapter 43. He refuses to remember them. He refu- he's deliberate. The Bible tells us that God is love, right? God is love. Love covers over a multitude of sins, right? Does love keep a record of wrongs? No, neither does God. Once he forgives, 
He keeps no record of wrongs. He deliberately forgets all that stuff. He casts it as far away as the east is from the west. Is that good news? Oh, man. Do we do that for one another? No, sadly, we remember sins, don't we? I remember what you did. You, we say this, you always do that. Do I always do it? And we say those kinds of things, don't we? If God has forgiven me and he has forgotten all my sins, should we not also do that for others? One another, certainly. Good news. Good news. Micah chapter 7, verse 19. Forgiveness is depicted as God who will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Wow. Now, John's father, Zechariah, had prophesied that John would proclaim God's forgiveness. If you go back into chapter 1, in Zechariah's prophecy, when John was born, he prophesied that John would profess and proclaim God's forgiveness. That his message would offer hope to a people burdened with the weight of sin and guilt. People need hope today. People need genuine hope today. Genuine hope and change. As a result, multitudes, multitudes flood from Jerusalem, all Judea, the whole region of Jerusalem. They flock to the desert to hear John. Why? Because he has a message that they have an appetite for. They know they're guilty. They know they're sinners. They know they're under God's wrath. They know they can't keep the law. And then you hear a message of hope. Message of forgiveness being proclaimed in the wilderness. Can you see how people flock out there to hear it? Are people flocking today to hear a message of good news? No. Largely because, unfortunately, we have been characterized as not being people of good news. We should be, I believe, the happiest people on the face of the earth. Should we not? Though we are acquainted with grief like Jesus, we should still be the happiest people on earth. We should be people who are just absolutely delightful people. And say, why, why are you so happy? What is it about you? Why are you always smiling? You really want to know? I have good news. I've got good news. People hunger for good news. And if we could just capture them for a few minutes to say, has anybody ever told you? Has anybody ever sat down and explained to you the good news? Give me a few minutes of your time, an hour of your time. Let me explain to you the good news. But forgiveness, now remember, this is critical. Forgiveness comes only to those who acknowledge and turn from their what? Their sins, that's right. So John, coming to announce forgiveness, he also proclaimed the need for Repentance. This is key. This is critical. This was not an unfamiliar concept to the Jews. There are many, many passages in the Old Testament where God speaks to his prophets, to Israel, to repent. Let me just read to you from Isaiah chapter 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Well, that's important, huh? Seek him while he may be found. The implication is you may not always have the opportunity. Seek him while he may be found. Call on him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will freely pardon. Freely. You don't have to pay for it. It's a free gift. In Ezekiel chapter 18, much the same message. Therefore, O house of Israel, I will judge you each one according to his ways, declares the sovereign Lord. How many would like to be judged according to your ways? No, we're going to, now remember, we are going to be judged. We're going to stand before God. Every human being is going to stand before God on judgment day, right? Do we understand that? And we're all going to be given account, right? But we're going to be judged according to what? The righteousness that has been given to us, accorded to us. 
We're going to be judged because of what Jesus has done. Somebody say hallelujah. Amen to that. He says, I will judge each one of you according to his ways, declares the sovereign Lord. Then he says, repent. Turn away from all your offenses. Then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. He's talking about getting born again. When you turn away and you turn to, you, you become a new creation, born again. Get a new heart, get a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. And here's this message, repent and live. Repent and live. Repent and live. Now repentance is not merely just an intellectual change of mind about who Jesus is, nor is it some superficial remorse over the consequences of my sin. We're very often sorry uh, over our sin, but we're more sorry over the consequences, right? We lament the consequences of our sin. We very rarely actually lament the sin. No, repentance, repentance is a radical turning from sin to God. When you turn from something, you automatically turn to something. It has to be a deliberate turning. It has to be a radical turning. Your life as a Christian, your life as a believer, your life as a, a child of God has to be radically different. New appetite, new direction, new relationships, new characters in those characteristics to those relationships. Characterized by love and gentleness and peace and so forth. There has to be a radical change. You have to recognize in other people, you want other people to recognize in you that you are not the same person you were before. Now I realize that some people have been, in, in, or, or, or younger, younger members have grown up in the church, they've grown up in Christian families, so they've heard this and, 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 and it's just kind of grown up with it. Doesn't always necessarily mean that they're born again. It just makes it that much more difficult for them to recognize any change and transformation in their life. But the point is, do they see growth? Do you see growth in your life? Are you becoming more like Christ? That's really the telltale sign. So it's a radical turning. It is really a repudiation. For those of us who came to Christ later on in life, it really is a repudiation of the old life. No more. I'm turning. I, I'm, I'm rejecting that. That's the path. That was the broad way that leads to death. I, want to, I found the new way, the, the narrow gate that leads to life. Turning to God for salvation. And salvation, I'm saved. God has saved me. He saved me from the penalty of sin. What's the penalty of sin? Death and hell. Forever and ever and ever. People say, well, you know, I don't, I don't believe in hell. Just because you choose not to believe in it doesn't make it any less real. I mean, there's, there's something down deep in all of us that dreads dying and the uncertainty of what comes afterwards. I don't know about you, but I want some assurance, not guesswork. Assurance that's based on some substantial testimony and evidence that's coherent and consistent. And that's the scriptures. That's the changed lives of people, the testimonies of many, many we've known. God saved me from the, the penalty of sin. He saved me from the power of sin. Sin no longer has power over us, and, and that's the wonderful good news also. Salvation is not just a fire escape. Salvation also is deliverance from the very power of sin. So now I am actually free to do what God wants. We talked a little earlier about legalism and and that, that most of the time we're, we're performing for people to get them to accept us. No, no, it's just the opposite with God. He accepts us first, then we perform. Much more fruitful. When you, when you know in a relationship that you are unconditionally accepted, unconditionally accepted, warts and all, does that endear you to the people who you're in relationship with? Yeah, they're a safe harbor, they're a safe haven. But if you put demands on them, you've got to change, they've got to do this, they've got to do that. They're going to put distance between themselves and you, are they not? 
Rather, just, just, you just love them. You accept them. And as you do so, they're free to change. They're free to use their energy to change and to grow. Without that, they use all that energy to what? Defend themselves. To hide from you. That's no kind of way to live, is it? Very, very critical. Romans chapter 6 tells us that we've been freed from the power of sin. The power of sin. Paul says we are no longer slaves to sin. Somebody say hallelujah. Now saving repentance, saving repentance never exists except in partnership with, what do you think? We live a life of faith. Saving repentance never exists apart for uh, this relationship to faith. I've got to believe. It is impossible to have true faith in Jesus Christ apart from true repentance from sin. Just like it's uh, true repentance from sin apart from true faith is impossible. The two go hand in hand. If I have not true faith, my repentance is not true. If I don't have true repentance, I can't have true faith. You've got to have both working simultaneously. And these are essentially two sides of the same work of the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin and draw us to Christ. It's his job to do that, to convict me of my sin. And it has to be, it has to be understood. You'll, you'll notice if you're following along in your notes, I've given you some true or false statements. You see that? I'll tell you, Head, these are trick statements. I'm always trying to trick you, aren't I? All right. Now just follow with me. We're going to have a little vote afterwards. First one. True or false? Repentance is a human work that earns salvation. Now think of what I just said. Repentance is a what? A human work that earns salvation. Okay, ready? We're going to vote. True. False. Wow. I vote false. It's tricky. You have to pay attention. Here's a second one. This is more tricky. Or more trickier. Repentance is a pre-salvation effort by sinners to set their lives right that God rewards by saving them. True or false? How many vote true? Now, if you're going to vote true, you've got to raise your hand. None of this. Okay, let's read it again. Repentance is a pre-salvation effort by sinners to set their lives right that God rewards by saving them. <laughs> I love this. Don't you love this? You're going to go out here going, I am so mad at him. He makes me do this. Makes me think. It's false. Nothing that you and I can do on our own can earn salvation or gain God's mercy and grace and rewards. Nothing. And yet we try. We try to, to expand our list of heavenly brownie points, don't we? Left to ourselves, left to ourselves, the Bible tells us that we as unregenerate sinners will never come to these conclusions. Why? Because Jesus says we love the darkness and will not come into the light. We love the darkness. We hide. I'm not even going to ask for a show of hands of how many people right this morning are still hiding. Hiding something. Unwilling to come into the light. Because all of us are. Would you agree? It's a battle, isn't it? We find safety in the darkness. We don't find safety in the light. We have to be compelled. Paul tells us in the second chapter of Ephesians 
that, that we'll never come to this knowledge and these conclusions ourselves because as unregenerate sinners, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are deader than doornails, spiritually to God. Does a dead person know that he needs to repent? No, not at all. That's our condition. That's our true condition. But the conviction that produces repentance is a work of the Holy Spirit. God is, God is, he knows, he understands, and he works in our life to convict us, to make us alive so that we can know that we are sinners. John chapter 16, verse 8, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. How many are glad that the Holy Spirit worked in your life to convict you? Was it a pretty thing in the beginning? You know, you go, ooh, yuck. I thought I was a pretty good person. Now I can see I'm not. Oh, I'm wretched. Ooh, I don't want anyone to look at myself. But he convicts us. And so that what? So that he might what? Save us. Bring us that point of repentance. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, turn there with me, I want you to see this. Page 1184. Paul captures the essence of repentance in this passage. And he begins by distinguishing remorse over sin's consequences from the sorrow that produces genuine repentance. Look with me, beginning at verse nine. Paul says, yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to what? Repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended. You might wanna underline that little phrase, as God intended. And so we're not harmed in any way by us. Now here's the key verse. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Now let me just, you may, you may have been party to something like this. You have offended somebody or they've offended you and they're all sorry or you're all sorry and you see how much you hurt the person, so you say, I'm really sorry, I'll never do that again. But then you do it again. We've, I've, I've seen it tons of times. I've done it. I'm sorry. Are you really sorry? No. Why, because you did it again. And so you say, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. But you do it again. I'm going to suggest to you, that is not genuine sorrow and repentance. It's, that's worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow does not have the oomph. It doesn't have the power. It doesn't have the impetus to drive you to genuine repentance. Only godly sorrow does. What's godly sorrow? Godly sorrow causes you to view your sin as God views it. The Bible tells us that God cannot look on sin. It's absolutely abhorrent. He's a holy God. He cannot look on sin. That's why I think that on the cross, when Jesus cried out, why have you forsaken me, to his father, at that point when he became sin for us, that the father could not look on him. Can't imagine what that was like. Imagine this, if you will. And I think all of us can relate to this. You're driving down the street and you're approaching a signal, intersection. The light turns yellow and you're at a moment of decision and you're in a hurry. What is the decision? Do I go for it? Can I make it? Or do I stop, right? I promise you, probably, there isn't a single one of us at some point who hasn't run a red light. What have you done when you ran the red light? You have broken the law. Are you guilty? Yes. Right. 
As soon as you make it through the intersection, what is the first thing you do? Look in the rear view mirror, that's right. If there's no flashing red light in your rear view mirror, you go, I made it. And you forget about it. You don't go through that red light and go, I just broke the law. You don't drive to the police station. You don't say, officer, arrest me. I just broke the law. I'm guilty. I'm so sorry. Do you do that? No. If there's no red flashing light in your rearview mirror, you're gone, man. All right, I made it. But let's say you look in your rearview mirror and whoo, 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 you're pulled over. And the officer comes, the officer comes, says, give me your driver's license. So you know the routine, right? And you tell him, officer, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. Are you really sorry? Yeah, you're sorry you got caught. You're sorry you're going to get a ticket. You are not sorry you broke the law. Officer, I'm so sorry. Arrest me. Throw the book at me. Give me the ticket. I'm guilty. I deserve it. We do that? No. See, that's the difference in worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. You get the difference? Godly sorrow drives us to repentance. Godly sorrow leads to repentance that brings salvation. The point Paul is making is you and I cannot be saved despite what we say unless we have repented and we will never repent unless we have experienced godly sorrow, unless we've seen our sin the way God sees it. Am I making sense? You know, I read an article, I think I shared this with you sometime a year or two ago. I read an article published by uh, the Baptist Convention, the Baptist denomination, and they did a survey, of a, broad, a broad survey across all their churches. And it was published nationally. And the conclusion was by the, these are the leaders of the Baptist denomination. The conclusion they came to was shocking. They said that probably 50% of the people sitting in Baptist churches are not saved. These are Baptists. These are your proverbial fundamentalists. These are the people who are, who are essentially fundamental evangelical. Baptists, half of them are not even saved. What does that say for the rest of our churches? That's why Paul tells us at the end of 2 Corinthians, he says, check yourself out, make sure you're the faith. We have to be always checking ourselves out. Would you agree? This is why community is so important. Community helps keep you honest. If you're in community and you're not talking, you're not sharing, you're not becoming vulnerable, you're not, you have no guarantee. If you are generally a Christian, there should be an appetite in you for community. Am I, agree, am, I, am I right or am I just missing it? What do you think? There should be something in you that moves you to want to be part of the body, part of the community. Now notice verse 11 of this passage. It's in verse 11 that Paul describes the effect in the life of the Corinthians, and by extension, the, the, the effect in our lives. He says, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What earnestness, what eagerness, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness. Does that characterize your life? Can you say, these things are evident in my life. This is what godly sorrow does. This is what repentance leads to. This eagerness. These are important things for us to understand. Is there an eagerness in your life to pursue righteousness and earnestness? Is there an eagerness to end any indifference to sin? Or complacency? in your Christian life. Man, it is easy to become complacent, isn't it? 
to kind of settle down in a comfort zone. You look around and say, well, I'm, I'm not as bad as this next person. I'm not as bad as Tui, so I guess I'm doing okay. <laughs> Is there an indignation? An indignation or a righteous anger at the dishonor that sin brings to your Heavenly Father's holy name? So much so that you want to have nothing to do with it. You say, well, that's impossible. No, it's not. You can grow and grow and grow with a holy indignation. A longing to have your relationship with him be better and better and better. Repentance also produces a passionate desire to see righteousness. Righteousness. Does that describe your life? Only you can answer that. John preaches a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is key. It simply means that if a person wanted to be forgiven of his sins, he had to repent. He would turn from his sins. He would turn to God. And as a sign of this, as a public signal, as a public declaration, he would be baptized. That's right. Now remember, John's baptism is not the same as Christian baptism. John's baptism was absolutely unique, never before practiced. Different from Christian baptism. Christian baptism, as we practice it, and as the Bible describes it, symbolizes Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, but also our union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. When we baptize you, we take you out under the water. It's a picture of dying and being buried. When you come up out of the water, it's a picture of being raised to new life. Jesus died, was buried, and rose to new life. We also, in union with him, have that same process, if you will, applied to our lives. And John's baptism, again, is a baptism of repentance. Now remember, no ritual can produce forgiveness. No ritual. All these are pictures. We take communion. It's a picture. It reminds us. It's an opportunity to remember. Baptism is a picture of what has happened to us in that spiritual realm. John's baptism, called a baptism of repentance, was absolutely unique, as I said a moment ago. There were, in Judaism, if you read the Mosaic Law, there were a number of ritual washings the Jews practiced for any number of reasons. And those ritual washings, nowhere is found a unique, a a baptism for the Jews. This is key. Jesus, I'm, I'm sorry, the Jews did, however, baptize Gentiles. Gentile proselytes to Judaism. So if you're a Gentile and you want to associate with God's people, the Jews, you had to undergo certain rites. Now, if you're a male, you had to be circumcised. As well, you had to offer particular sacrifice in the temple, and then you had to undergo this ritual bath, this ritual washing. And the picture there was the cleansing, uh, representation of repentance and cleansing from your Gentile uncleanness. According to Jewish ritual and Jewish law, Gentiles were unclean. If you were a Jew and you touched a Gentile, that would render you ceremonially unclean. So this was part of the genesis of, the, uh, of the, the animosity between Jews and Gentiles, certainly back in those days. If you're a Gentile, you knew that you were considered unclean by the Jew and you were a, a Gentile dog that would not exactly endear you to them, right? So you understand this. Now, the Jews considered this, themselves clean simply because they were descendants of Abraham. They didn't need to be cleansed. Only unclean Gentiles needed this ritual washing. But John, the Baptist, comes along and he says that sin makes everyone unclean and they all needed forgiveness. They all needed cleansing. Now imagine this. So those Jews who were baptized by John as they confessed their sins, they were publicly acknowledging that they were no better than Gentiles. That's astonishing. That's humiliating. You must come down in this water and be baptized with his baptism of repentance just like any Gentile. 
Wow. They had to place themselves on the same level as despised Gentiles. That was humiliating. That was astounding. And, and I think a testimony to the Holy Spirit empowered preaching of John the Baptist to get them to do that. Unbelievable. Now, unfortunately, few being baptized by John were truly repentant. How do we know that? How do we know there were few of them were really truly repentant? Because the whole nation would later reject who? They reject Jesus. Why would they reject Jesus? He failed to meet their expectations of the Messiah. They were looking for a political, military deliverer who would set them free from Roman domination, right? He wasn't their Lord. They didn't say to him, yes, Lord, your will be done like we do. We don't have any false expectations of Jesus, do we? Yes, we do. That's part of our battle as a Christian is to bring our life in line with him, to acknowledge him in all of our ways, not to lean on our own understanding. Am I making sense? Yeah, because if you have, if you have expectations of, of Jesus that he has absolutely no intention of fulfilling and you bang on him and bang on him and he never meets them, what's that going to do to you? It's either going to force you to change your expectations or you're going to just leave. I tried Jesus. I tried the Jesus thing. It never worked. I can't tell you how many people I've heard that from, and probably you have too. Now let me call your attention real quickly to the passage that's quoted from Isaiah. Nothing, nothing more convincingly demonstrates God's control over human history than the fulfillment of prophecy. If you recall, when we studied through the book of Daniel, what was the overarching theme of the book of Daniel? Anybody? God's in control. How can we know that? Because it's full of prophecy. The, the nations of the world were prophesied. They all came to pass. And in the order that God had said. Now these words of Isaiah that Luke quotes... Isaiah writes a full 700 years before John's ever born, before Jesus is ever born. And John's fulfillment of this prophecy shows the incredible continuity between his ministry and the Old Testament. This was absolutely critical. If the Jews were to receive John as a genuine prophet from God, there had to be this continuity. And the fact that he comes and preaches and he preaches the very things that the prophets earlier said that he would preach makes the connection. Are you with me? This is very, very important for the, if you're a Jew living in the first century. John perfectly fulfilled the prophecy. He was the voice of one calling in the desert. In keeping with his role as the Messiah's forerunner, John called on the people. He says, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. We have the same message, don't we? In a very real sense, we, we tell people, prepare the way for the Lord. Get your act together. Get your life together. Turn around. Wake up. The imagery that's, that Luke uses here in Isaiah, as he quotes Isaiah, is of a, of a monarch visiting his, his realm. He sends messengers on ahead to make sure that the roads were cleared of debris and, and, and other hazards and and in the process, the valleys would be filled in, the mountain hills made low. The crooked roads would be made straight and the rough places would be made smooth. All for the monarch to come. Every, everything they could do, remove every hindrance. What a picture. What a picture. This is John's announcement. The opening words of chapter 40 of Isaiah start with these, these, are, the, these are the opening words. Listen to this. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Chapter 40 of Isaiah is the pivotal chapter in the book. The first 39 chapters in Isaiah deal all with judgment. And now the theme changes. The message is no longer judgment. The message is now salvation. 
The same God who judged Israel for her sins will one day have mercy on her. His ultimate purpose for the nation is not judgment, but salvation. And salvation of the, rem the believing remnant. And that salvation for Israel will be also based on, how are we saved? By grace through faith. Same basis for the salvation of the remnant of Israel. Read Romans chapter 11. You see it clearly spelled out in that passage. So the theme of God's comforting Israel runs through the whole last half of Isaiah's prophecy. Ultimately, God's comfort of Israel will culminate in what's known as the millennial kingdom, a literal thousand year reign of Jesus on the earth. Human history will end when the Lord Jesus returns and he establishes his kingdom and he reigns over the whole world. And there'll be three major effects. There'll be a political effect, a physical effect, and a spiritual effect of that reign on the earth. Politically, the millennial kingdom will be characterized by Christ's universal, absolute, righteous reign. He will finally come. Do we long for righteous rulers? Someone that we can trust in who will absolutely rule in a righteous manner. Politically, if you will, that will be the tenor of the millennial kingdom. Physically, physically, the curse will be lifted. The curse on the earth, all creation will be lifted, resulting in abundant provision, abundant life, health, long life for all. People will be living to year, tremendous ages, good health, no more arthritis, no more dementia, no more Alzheimer's, no more cancer, no more breakdown of our bodies. Hallelujah. Come Lord Jesus, amen. And spiritually, the knowledge of the Lord will be absolutely universal. All men will know. And the believing remnant of Israel will be saved. That's Isaiah's message to them. That's the comfort. But that's also comfort to us. And the words of Isaiah's prophecy also serve as an analogy of the repentance that God preached. Just think with me. The desert pictures the sinful heart. And repentance involves light shining on the deep, dark things of the heart. And this is pictured by filling in the valleys. And then you have humbling of the human pride, the, the lowering of the mountains and the hills. You, you, you just see this. The imagery is amazing. The crooked, deceitful, devious, perverse things must be made straight in any other rough places in the heart whether it be self-love, self-interest, self-will, love of money, love of the world, the lust of the flesh, indifference, unbelief, all these things must be smoothed. Repentance, repentance. And only then will the repentant see God's salvation. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. When he convicts us, we respond. We respond with godly sorrow over what we see in our life. And we turn from it, turn to God. We repent. That sets the stage for salvation. You cannot be saved unless you have genuinely repented of your sin. And you cannot repent unless you've experienced godly sorrow. It's not enough to be sorry over the consequences. You've got to experience the kind of sorrow that God sees and God experiences over our sin. So abhorrent, you will have nothing to do with it ever, ever again. Amen. Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you for John. Thank you for the message of good news, the message of repentance and forgiveness and baptism. Lord, we want our lives to be testimonies to your glory. We want our lives to be bright testimonies still to those who are perishing, that we could be like John going out into the dark places in the desert and calling out to people, prepare the way. Jesus is coming. No time to waste. Turn to him while he's near, while there's still time.
Lord, embolden us. Help us to certainly make sure of our own salvation, to evaluate our own repentance. Was it genuine? Are we different, really? Or are we just the same old, same old? Lord, don't let us rest. Challenge us. And Lord, as we come to confidence again in faith in what you're doing in our life, that we would go share good news with others. Father, we thank you this morning and we love you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. Turn to your neighbor, pronounce a blessing in Jesus' name on your neighbor, if you would. And if it's appropriate, only if it's appropriate, give your neighbor a holy hug and very possibly a holy kiss. Let's stand together and sing God's praises one more time before we dismiss and get our synonym rolls. <laughs>